0: I want to greet all of you this morning in the unsearchably great name of Jesus, struck by the fact that the psalmist said, uh, God's greatness is unsearchable. We, We proclaim our great God, but we can never reach the limits of his greatness. I think sometimes about the purpose of our gathering and that it's our desire to lift up the name of Jesus, and I think that's good, and yet he's... Exalted above all, uh, far above all. And uh, more what we're doing is confessing something that already exists, and that is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. No greater place in the cosmos, um, our exalted Savior. I was struck by... uh, the psalm that uh, Jared read this morning, and the statement about the word of God—that it is a warner of God's people. Moreover, by them the word of God is thy servant warned. You know, as a parent, I appreciate children that heed warnings. If I say there's danger, and that warning is ignored, and things go badly, well, it's just. Just hard to gather up, just a whole lot of sympathy. told you this is dangerous. You stumbled into it presumptuously, knowing that there was danger, and now there's consequences. I was traveling north on 35 a few weeks ago, and two state trooper cruisers came by going the other way. I don't know how fast those cruisers can go, but they were traveling pretty close to that speed, roaring by, sirens blaring, headed, I wondered where. One thing I was pretty sure of is they were headed into a dangerous situation. I imagine they were warned at the barracks. I imagine a 911 call came in. Wouldn't be surprised if it was drugs or a domestic dispute. There's often guns involved in those situations, I understand. Can imagine if the 911 call that came in said, uh, man's just finished beating up his wife, he's drunk, he's, uh, carrying guns and saying anybody comes on his property, he's gonna shoot him dead. I don't know if that was the situation, but you can imagine that. You can also imagine if those troopers maybe hopped up from their lunch and hopped into their car and took off South on 35 into a non-dangerous, even deadly situation and didn't pull on their bulletproof vests. I, back in my day, if a policeman got shot in the chest, he was dead. Uh, Today, I notice whenever I see policemen, anytime, anywhere, there's always kind of a thickness under their shirt. Well, they they wear these vests. They call it body armor, prepared for danger. So the presumption of being warned about danger and lurching into danger without preparing yourself. Moreover, by the word of God is thy servant warned. I want to turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1, and continue looking at what Peter has to warn us about, about the suffering that God has ordained for his people. Suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for the gospel, suffering for Christ's name. So if these uh, state troopers leapt into harm's way presumptuously without putting on their body armor, and they were shot for it. That's a tragedy. But the real tragedy is they were warned, and they didn't heed the warning. We have a warning here about suffering from Peter. He commends us to a body armor. We uh, read in Ephesians 6, six pieces of the whole armor of God that Paul talks about the fact that we need to have this battle belt of truth and this breastplate of righteousness and feet shod with the uh, uh, readiness of the gospel of peace. You have to have the uh, helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. This is the whole armor of God. You, You don't want to tangle with the wiles of the devil without that armor on. Well, I don't know if Peter's correcting Paul here or just adding to it, but he has another piece of armor that we need to wear as we encounter suffering in the Christian life. The first half of chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. The call is to consider Christ's suffering in the flesh, recognize that we are so-called, and to arm yourself with Christ's mind towards suffering. So, an unconditional command of Scripture here. Arm yourself with the same mind as Christ. Are we armed with Christ's mind today? It's a question I had. Think about what it means to have the mind of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 2 says, We, plural, corporately, the body, have the mind of Christ. That's encouraging to me as we gather for worship or gather to be taught from God's word or gather for a brother's meeting, to carry out serious business of the church. We have the mind of Christ. We don't need to strive for it. It's been given to us. Tremendous blessing. But in Philippians, we're encouraged individually to let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That is, there's something lacking, something we need to do, something that's our part. And that is, the mind that was also in Christ Jesus is to be in us individually. So, I've asked myself this question, I'll ask you this morning. Have you let the mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus? Is that accomplished? Paul felt that the Philippians had not, and he had to call them to let that mind be in them. And Peter says here in verse one of chapter four, Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. That is a mind that understands that suffering is God's will, it's God's calling. The uh, disciples and Jesus We're walking through Jerusalem and they encountered a man born blind. And right away out comes a doctrine from the pit of hell out of the disciples' mouth. For all Jesus' instruction, for all his example, for all his careful choosing of these disciples, here it comes out of the disciples' mouth. Man born blind, he's sitting there suffering, he's poor, he's probably filthy, he's dirty, he's despised. He is obviously under the curse of God. This is one of God's people The son of Abraham, look at him suffering there. The disciples ask in their broken understanding of the kingdom, did this man sin or his parents? This is obviously a penalty for sin because anyone that is suffering is under the curse of God. Jesus answered, he corrected him. He said, neither. This man was born blind that the works of God might be made manifest in him. That suffering serves a purpose. God ordained it. God called this man to that. And God received glory from it. So it is with us. We are to arm ourselves with the same mind. Christ's mind that was willing to embrace the cross, was willing to embrace suffering, was willing to embrace death in the flesh, we're to arm ourselves with the same mind. <clears throat> Turn, if you would to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to think a little bit about how we engage difficult passages. We're not in a simple epistle. First Peter is not the shallow end of the pool. As far as scripture goes, I, I don't know if there is a shallow end, but it's not First Peter. And within the epistle of 1 Peter, at the end of chapter 3, we're into what most anyone that writes about these things says is the most difficult to understand part of the epistle. I want to think about how we engage with difficult scriptures. Um, about 12 years ago, some of us from here had been asked to come down to Washington DC and sit in a meeting of Mormon young people and testify about our faith and practice. Who we are, what we believe, how we live and why we live that way. And we spent the best part of an hour doing that and they had a lot of questions and that was all very helpful. But after that, I was approached by a young person who told me I'm missing out. He said, you need to embrace the Book of Mormon. Your faith is great, your practice is great. You're missing out. This is a holy book. This is God's will. I said, uh, mm, how, how do you know that? And he said, well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. What do you do with that? That's a hard passage. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Well, he stopped me there. He said, why? Why did they baptize for the dead? Do you all baptize for the dead? Hmm, no. well, there it is. They baptized for the dead. It it serves a purpose. The Book of Mormon will tell you. It will explain a difficult scripture to you. You should embrace it. Uh, I haven't embraced the Book of Mormon. I also don't understand that verse. Uh, Not entirely, I'd be glad to be instructed about baptism for the dead. But my reason for telling that little story is as we arrive at difficult scriptures, we need to engage them, but we need to be careful to not say something that isn't there. That is, let's don't fabricate a holy book that fabricates an explanation for a verse in scripture that describes something that Frankly, we can't really see our way through. Well, Peter is doing this in some of the verses that I wanna use as a text today. What I wanna recommend is that we avoid recoiling from it and saying, this is baffling, and walk away from it. But we'll apply some of the same things to these difficult scriptures that we do to all scriptures. That is, we let what's clear lodge in our hearts. We take it as the word of God, which it is. What's unclear, we will look to clear scriptures to explain. And when scripture whispers, we aren't going to shout. That is, we aren't gonna try to fabricate a doctrine just so we have something to say. I was struck by the fact in reading about this passage that Martin Luther, who I've never read or heard of ever once, uttering, uh, I'll say a a humble word about the word of God, he said about verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter three, I have no idea what this verse is saying. Well, I'm not here to build up Martin Luther. Uh, he has a lot of things to answer for, but I appreciate the statement that he encountered something in the Word of God, he dug his way through it, and was satisfied to have the humility to say, really not sure what this is saying. So, we'll be working through a passage that is... uh Can I use the word fraught? It's fraught. It's deep with difficulties. It's not a simple passage. Um, I think we're done with Baptism for the Dead. Why don't we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to get ready to read this text. Before I do, I was at ministers' meetings and Aaron Lapp, I don't know how many of you would know him, he's written an Anabaptist perspective commentary on a number of books of the Bible, and I was intrigued to meet the man. Uh, I had seen his commentary on First Peter. I didn't have it, and I think his $13 books were $10 at the ministers' meeting. So I'm enough of a Mennonite to appreciate a bargain. I had my ten bucks and went up to him, and preaching through First Peter. I liked to have that commentary. He gave me First Peter. Talking to him for a while, pretty soon he sets down First and Second Corinthians, and then he sets down James, and then he sets down Romans, and then he sets down Genesis, and he. Pretty soon, I had a tower of books, and I'm scratching through my pocket for enough $10 bills to buy all this. And I went away thinking, that man is quite a salesman. I, I hope he's as good a commentator as he is a salesman. I staggered away with a big pile of commentary books. That's a long story. I need to get back to that. Aaron Lapp says about this passage, a notoriously difficult passage, perhaps the most difficult in all of First Peter. Peter's economy of words can leave us feeling shortchanged. Have you ever been there in the word of God, read a passage and thought, there's got to be more. I would love to have more. I, I need this explained. I need to know more. This is kind of where we are. I, I agree with him. Shortchanged doesn't sound very nice. Um, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We don't question him, but yet I really wonder if Peter knew, as he was writing about here in First Peter, the end of chapter 3, how much turmoil and confusion and disagreement there would be in the church for the next 2,000 years over his choice to express some big thoughts with just a few words. I wonder if he would go through and apply a little more um, explanation. This Aaron Lapp says, and I agree with him, that Peter is presuming that we know things that it appears modern Christians don't really know very well. He's talking about things that are unfamiliar to us, and that may well reflect the problem on our part. All right. I want to get into the text, but before I do... um... I want to consider a little bit where we are coming from. First uh, Peter 2, if you flip back a page, verse 20, I said was the climax of the epistle. It may or may not be, but I, that's what I said. First Peter 2, verse 20. We read about the fact that... I'm going to read it here just for review. The fact that the child of God... To follow in Christ's footsteps in suffering in the flesh. And also, uh, also He's to be our example in suffering. So the child of God is called to suffering. It it says that here. Um, Chapter 2, verse 20, second half of the verse. We read... Uh, if you do well, speaking of the Christian life, you're living in obedience to God, and you suffer for it, persecuted for righteousness' sake, if you suffer for living the Christian life well and take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, that is this little box here, suffering. This is our destination. This is our calling. What's it all about? What is this Christianity thing? Well, the child of God walks in Jesus' footsteps, follows Jesus' example, and is called to suffering for doing well. It's a pretty simple but profound statement. So verse 21 said, Even here unto you called. Christ suffered for us. He left us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He did no sin, no guile found in his mouth. We'll just notice here that much suffering comes from disobedience and sin. There's nothing sanctified about that. No glory for God from that. We're talking about obedience producing suffering. Um, verse 23, he was reviled but returned not reviling. He suffered, he threatened not, committed himself to God that judges righteously. Verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness. So Jesus' suffering accomplished that the dead could live. He bore our sins on the tree, and we were able to live under righteousness because of that. That's what that verse says, that we being dead to sins would live under righteousness. By his stripes, we were healed. So the idea here with these footsteps and example is that we give our mortal bodies unto suffering, that a watching world may live. The fruit of our suffering is that those that see and say, that is it, humanly that's impossible. No one can do that. That must be the grace of God working in that child of God. That's compelling to me. I want to know more. So you see how our suffering, a sanctified response to it, can produce life from death, even as Jesus' suffering produced life from death. By Jesus' stripes, we were healed As we endure stripes in cross-bearing, the stripes have the same purpose. They provide healing for people that see the grace of God and glorify him for it. Okay, so this is what we were talking about. Now, um, what Peter's going to do is extend this and say that we actually are not called to suffering. This was just the beginning of our calling. I want you to turn with me to chapter 3 and verse 16, and I'm going to read down through the first half of verse 1 and chapter 4 and see that actually our calling is not to suffering So the calling that Peter's going to lay out here as he expands on what he's already taught, which even here unto you are called, Christ's bearing our sins on the cross made it possible for you to pass from death to life. His stripes were healing for you. So also you follow his footsteps. You follow his example. People are able to observe your sanctified suffering pass from death to life. They're healed by your stripes. But actually, that is not the calling. The calling is not to suffering, but through suffering. If you take one thing from the message today, I'd like to make the point that the calling for the Christian is in obedience, through suffering, to glory. Even as Christ's experience was. Let's read uh, here, starting in verse... 16, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, that would be a watching world in darkness and sin, they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than evil-doing. So Peter sets aside any kind of suffering that comes from disobedience, unsanctified behavior. That is totally not part of what he's considering. Verse 18, 4, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Okay, verse 19 to 21 here is a little bit of a, well, we see a parenthesis in verse 21. The light like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, parentheses. Okay, the parentheses in the King James translation is telling us not that this is an insertion. This isn't the word of God. This is the word of God. But it's marking a place where there's a thought within a thought. It's 223 times in the King James translation that the translators put in parentheses to tell us here's a thought within a thought. Here's one of these times. Uh, Baptism doth also now save us. Parentheses. Not putting away filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. End of parentheses. By the resurrection of Jesus. So this is helpful, because otherwise it's confusing. The thought within the thought becomes kind of like an inspired bunny trail. We go off on it. We follow the apostle there, and all of a sudden he's picking up another thought. And we have to kind of get back to where we started. The parentheses says, this can be set aside. And every parenthesis in the King James, that text could be eliminated and the text makes sense to follow through without the parentheses. So here's the importance of a parenthesis. Of a simple math equation here. It won't take anybody long to figure that up. Problem is there's two answers here. There's confusion because there isn't a parenthesis. We need to know how to handle this. There's multiple operations here. And if you do them wrong, you get the wrong answer. I don't even know what the right answer is. There isn't the right answer. There's two answers. There's not enough information here. So in the King James, when we come to some of these difficult passages, Peter and Paul put thoughts within thoughts that kind of derail us and confuse us. The parentheses help us. So here, if I put parentheses here, the answer is 36. And if I put parentheses here, the answer is 27. Well, there isn't a right or wrong. Uh, but in the word of God, there is a right or wrong. We need to understand where the parentheses belong. So as we're reading this passage here, um, verse 19 to verse 21 could very well have parentheses. It's a it's a side topic. It's a thought within a thought. And it derails a little bit what Peter's doing here, especially because it's such a difficult passage. So if we read this passage through verse 18 and then pick up in verse 22, we get the flow of thought of the apostle. And verse 19 through 21, we set aside. Not that it's not important. It is. It's not clear. And to me, it kind of confuses what verse 18 and verse 22 are trying to present. So I'm going to leave out 19 through 21. Uh, It's not going to be part of today's message. I hope you can take that in the right spirit, but I think it would be valid to put parentheses around 19 to 21. So I'm going to read 18 and 22 and let this middle few verses set. Um, Christ suffered for sins, verse 18, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. 22, who, speaking of Christ, is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Okay, so I kind of warned us here that this idea that our calling was suffering was not complete. In verse eighteen we read, Christ suffered Just for the unjust. Being put to death in the flesh. Spirit. This is the resurrection. Verse 22. Gone into heaven. This is the ascension. On the right hand of God. This is Christ's exaltation. You know, Paul had an experience, whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know and neither do we, but he had an experience in the heaven of heavens. But he was not exalted there. He didn't sit down at the right hand of the throne of God like Jesus did. This is defining Jesus' ministry. And Peter is saying, this is to be our experience also. We are not called to suffering, but through suffering. We're called to glory. We're called to follow Christ. Suffering, death, uh, the outer man, death in the flesh, a quickening, a conversion, an ascension and exaltation are our destination. What's the Christian life all about? Ultimately, it's about Glorification or exaltation. So this suffering thing, a uh, couple of verses we're familiar with, just mention them here, is called a suffering. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We, we share that. You say, I, I would love my enemies if I had any. Well, you do. You have, uh, is it 8 billion now? Uh, the world hates. True disciples of Jesus. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. First um, John 3, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. It's not a surprising thing. John 17, Jesus praying. He says to the Father, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. There's something despicable about the gospel and the kingdom and the word of God to the citizens of this world. Acts 14, we much through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Luke 14, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You want to be a disciple without a cross? Jesus says it's impossible. This is suffering that begins the Christian life, but it's not our destination. Um. Philippians chapter 1, would you? Mark first Peter, I'd like to be able to come right back, and Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Just reminding ourselves of our participation with Christ in bodily suffering, suffering in the flesh. Paul says to the Philippians, unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, that is, in, in honor of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So the easy believism of today would say, it's given to you to believe on Christ. But Paul says, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me, The conflict that the Philippians saw in Paul's life, the suffering. It's kind of interesting here, may not interest you, but it does me, that the word conflict is this the Greek word there is uh, agony, that's how it's said. Literally, what is being said is it's given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake, having the same agony which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So, Christian life starts but doesn't end with suffering. Back to 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. Verse 17 was describing the will of God that we suffer for doing well. And verse 18 says, for Christ also. It's making a connection between the suffering that we experience and Christ's. We suffer for Christ also suffered for sins that he might bring us to God. And that right there is the fruit of sanctified suffering. Christ's suffering brought, opened the way for us to God And our suffering is a testimony. It's compelling, it's powerful, shows the grace of God. It says, Christ suffered for sins that he might bring us to God. We have the opportunity to do the same thing. Um, Not as redeemers, but as examples of the Redeemer. Walking in his footsteps. Okay, we see in verse 18, Christ suffered, but that wasn't the end. He experienced death. He was resurrected. Verse 19 to 21, we didn't look at carefully, but Christ had a ministry of proclaiming the way to God, the gospel, the kingdom. Then in verse 22, we read of his ascension and his exaltation. Question for you. If you could pick the topic for the sermon today, I don't know how many of you would have picked to be preached to on the subject of prospering and suffering. It's kind of dark. It's kind of discouraging. How many of us are praying to suffer for the gospel? It's probably not a real common prayer. Do you recoil from the idea of suffering? I do. I don't think I'm the only one. It feels carnal. It feels unsanctified. I, I guess I'll just confess it. That this revulsion, this, this withdrawal from the idea of arming myself, preparing myself to suffer. You know, it should, should be worth it. There should be something to show for it. There should be a, what, a reward? Like, I don't mind doing unpleasant hard things if there's a reward at the end of the day. You know, the wages of sin is death. The wages of suffering, is it exaltation? (coughs) It would be helpful if it was. But that doesn't feel very sanctified, does it? We should willingly suffer just out of love for, fear of, respect to God. If that's what he calls me to, I'll do it. Anything for God. Yeah, well, shame on me if I'm a little bit thinking, what's the payback? Are there wages for my suffering? You know, I'll reassure myself and I'll reassure you that if you feel that way, I'll suffer, but it'd be nice if there was a payback. You're in good company. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Here we read about someone else. that recoiled from suffering, but persevered and endured because a reward was promised. We could go back to chapter 11. Faith chapter. Comes some shocking suffering in the flesh here. Verse 36, others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, bonds, imprisonment. 37, they were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented. The world was not worthy. There's some parentheses, thought within a thought. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Whose dream for their Christian life is to be like that, sawn asunder? How about living in dens and caves? How about walking about in goatskins being destitute? These are the heroes of the faith. This is Hebrews 11. We look up to these people. It goes on in verse 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is before us. Uh, just an aside here. This word race is the same Greek word I put up there in blue. Race is kind of a nice word. I don't I don't mind going out and competing in a race. Might be a little hard, might hurt a little, but somebody says, come on, we're going to participate in a course of agony. I might have other things to do. But this is what, in the original language, let us run with patience the agony that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, Jesus our example, Jesus whose footsteps we are to walk in. Looking unto Jesus, author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Well, there it is. Jesus endured the cross. He didn't want the cross. He didn't go to it joyfully or glad, gladly. He prayed that it would be removed For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus blanched at the death on the cross, looked through it to the joy that was set before him, and carried on. This is our example. Despising the shame set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, verse 3 says. Consider him. He endured this contradiction, this hatred, this reviling rejection of sinners against himself. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider him. This is important. This is calling us to arm ourselves with the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. It says, consider him. He endured contradiction of sinners against himself. You will too. If you don't arm yourself with this same mind of Christ, you will be wearied and faint in your minds. This is much more dangerous going into cross-bearing and suffering than these state troopers, 120 miles an hour, headed for a hostage situation without a bulletproof vest. We go in without the mind of Christ, not minded as Christ towards suffering, we will be wearied and faint. That's what the Hebrew writer says. All right. Said that Christ was called not to suffering, but through suffering to exaltation, and so are we. We should talk a little bit about how Christ seated at the right hand of God is our destination, also, if we're faithful. Um, Romans eight verse seventeen. Let's turn there. This idea that our calling through suffering to glory is reflecting Christ's. Romans eight seventeen. If we are children of God, it says, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, there's a lot of ifs here, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Paul's telling the Romans that a quality of the child of God, a quality of an heir of God, a quality of a joint heir with Christ is suffering that we may also be glorified. It doesn't seem that it's recommended that we be willing to suffer to get a greater crown. It says we need to embrace suffering as Christ did for the glory set before us that we may be glorified together with Christ. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, verse 18, are not worthy to be compared with the glory revealed in us. Paul is saying we look right past the sufferings like we're recoiling from those sufferings. He's saying, don't do that. Look through them. Look beyond. Look to the ascension and the exaltation. Those glories make these sufferings fade away. They're not worthy to be compared. Second Corinthians 4. Verse 14. Paul says, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. Okay, this isn't talking about the new birth. This is written to the church at Corinth. They've already been quickened in the spirit. He says the God that accomplished the ascension of Jesus will also accomplish our ascension and present us, the apostles, with us. Shade Mountain, present us with you. Paul says. He that raised up the Lord Jesus will raise up us also by Jesus. Ascension, not new birth. Verse fifteen four. All things are for your sake that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not. Though our outward man perish, he just kind of drops that. Goes without saying. You're a child of God outward man's going to perish. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction. You know, Paul's affliction wasn't light. He's saying, it seems light. I'm looking through it to ascension and glory. And that makes Paul's vast, terrible suffering a light affliction and ours too. Our light affliction is but for a moment. It works for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we see the, the instrument that affliction is to work glory. There's no way to glory that bypasses affliction. Uh, Revelation 3 verse 21. path to glory is through suffering, or there is no path to glory. Revelation 3 verse 21, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Well, there it is, are we overcomers? Well, overcomes what? To him that overcometh what? Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame? He's speaking this overcoming of the revulsion to suffering for the gospel. I overcame. If you overcome, I'll grant to sit with me in my throne. All right, I'm going to close with uh, pulling a little bit of a cheap shot here. Did you ever read a book that was so exciting you couldn't help yourself and you flipped to the end to see how it ends? I've done that. Well, once you've read the end, there's kind of no point to read the rest of it, but I feel like I should go back and read the rest of it. But we're going to flip to the end and just see how this book ends. We're talking about suffering as the path to exaltation. Peter ends his book in chapter 5 of 1 Peter and verse 10. We see that the God of all grace has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. But not just because we confess Jesus or because we're baptized or because we're members at Shade Mountain or some other church. He says he's called us to his eternal glory, the ascension and the exaltation that Christ experienced and we are promised. That is his eternal glory after you have suffered a while. It seems like there's just no way around it as much as we look for it. The scripture tells us that the path to the right hand of the Father must go through suffering a while. All right, 22 days ago in England, there was a coronation and Prince Charles, I guess, became King Charles, Uh, the world I had seen an article that said that 450 million people watched him get a crown put on his head. And then there was a collective, I don't know what the sound of a yawn from 450 million people would be, but whatever, what does it really mean? Charles was prince, now he's king, okay, he's got the crown. Jesus' coronation was not like that. When we speak of his ascension, we speak of his exaltation, sitting down at the right hand of God, which is language for having the crown put on his head. Nobody sits in the presence of a king except for royalty, someone else with a crown. So I'll close with Acts 1. It describes Jesus' coronation. 450 million people did not watch it, Uh, Acts 1. In closing, the uh, most earth-shaking, glorious coronation that would ever happen, crowning Jesus, king of the cosmos, was witnessed by 11 people. At Jesus' ascension, Acts 1, verse 6, they were come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel. So, non, not exactly. Um, down to verse 8. But you will receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. This is for us. This is our call. We are to be witnesses. We witness through cross-bearing. Witnesses unto me. Jerusalem, Judea, all Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. When it had spoken these things, they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight you know, we shouldn't just miss what was happening here. Here's 11 men. They're privy to this. I don't know that anyone else saw it. But the clouds were rolled back and the heaven of heaven was exposed and the throne room of God was open and Jesus ascended and was crowned and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Can we excuse the apostles for standing with their mouths hanging open? I would have. Cloud received him out of their sight, verse ten. While the eleven looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood in white apparel, it take them to be angels. And they said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same manner you've seen him go. You know, I think what the angels warning him is, You've been given something to do. You can't stand here and worship and glorify God. All the live long day. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. I will give you power. You'll be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the earth. It's time to get busy. It's going to cost. It's going to hurt. Many will pay the ultimate price. You cannot stand here and sing a hymn and bless God because we just saw Jesus crowned. He's coming again. Satan would say that in our Christian life, if we're suffering, something's wrong. Something's wrong. We've offended God. Or we're outside the will of God. Got to fix the suffering. Well, that isn't the case. If we are suffering for being faithful to Christ in the gospel, something is right. We are blessed, according to Sermon on the Mount. We are happy. We need to arm ourselves with the same mind as Christ that could look through the suffering, see it as a light affliction, see the joy set before us, and endure the cross. Let's kneel for prayer.